welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. Folks, you can now open your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we are in chapter 1, and even at first glance, as we look at this passage, it's pretty easy to grasp in verses 6 through 8. So uh, I will begin today simply by reading the text. It's probably most often employed by pastors to to emphasize foreign missions, Uh, go into all the world and make disciples is, is a very common parallel verse. Uh, to this, uh, that is correct, and we will have plenteous opportunities as we go through Acts to amplify that going out to all the nations. Uh, so I'm going to scrutinize a little something else today, uh, the motive of the question of, uh, poised by these disciples. We see written beginning in verse 6, So when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. A prominent New Testament theologian is named Richard Longnecker. Those good theologians always have those names, Richard Longnecker. Um, He was a professor for years at Wheaton and then uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, He also taught at Wycliffe College for a while. And and he attempts to dissect the mentality of the disciples here uh, by stating the following. Quote, The question the disciples asked reflects the embers of a, a once blazing hope for a political theocracy in which they would be leaders. Now the embers are fanned by Jesus' talk of the coming Holy Spirit. In Jewish expectations, the restoration of Israel's fortunes would be marked by the renewed activity of God's Spirit. But through Jesus' words about the Spirit's coming, rekindled in the disciples, uh, in the disciples their old nationalistic hopes, Jesus had something else in mind, unquote. In view of this this first question posed, at least as recorded by Luke, this first question by the apostles, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? I've tried to summarize Jesus' response in the title of today's message uh, with these words. This is the time to think bigger. Longnecker's assessment of these 11 remaining apostles 
Uh, it's common among numerous theologians I've read, which generally is this. They are still debating who among them is going to be greatest in the kingdom. They're, they're still wondering, just as James and John had just a few days earlier, on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, uh, who is going to have that privilege of sitting at Jesus' right and left hand? That was their question posed uh, just a few days ago. And they perpetuate, well, an attitude of the crowds who, who initially welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem riding on a donkey's colt uh, not that many days ago as well. And R.C. Sproul explains, quote, As Jesus approached Jerusalem, they, meaning the crowds, they had expected that God would that God's reign would arrive in physical force, only to have their hopes dashed by Jesus' death. And now that he has returned to life, their reborn hope still focuses narrowly on ethnic Israel. You know, have you ever had that fleeting thought? This is a fleeting thought that passes through your mind. Um, you know, I could just be satisfied with what we already have. There are lots of people out there surrounding us across the country, around our community. Yeah, but, but if they don't want to join us along with Jesus, you know, who, who needs them? Who needs them? And in our text, the disciples have been culturally predisposed, growing up in Israel, uh, predisposed to an isolated thinking that the kingdom of God is exclusively for them. It's all, all for their benefit. But for whose actual benefit is the kingdom? It's for the benefit of the king. It's for the glory of the king. And folks, great kings rule over big kingdoms. Jesus did not come to rule only over a, a postage stamp kingdom. He, he came, Scripture tells us, to conquer kingdoms. So the focus of the disciples, it remains far too narrow for Christ's kingdom, and Jesus therefore doesn't tolerate it for even a minute. And Jesus' response, well, it, it ought to for, for any small gathering. Jesus' response for any small gathering that, that might fit into one room, might fit even into an upper room, small circle of people, uh, it ought to prompt those who are narrowly minded into thinking a little bit bigger. You probably notice that verse 6 begins with the word so. It, it isn't the most common word in the Bible for so. Uh, rather, this, this is a two-word connective. Uh, may also be translated in your Bible as so then, when therefore, and is even sometimes translated in the English New Testament as consequently. 
it doesn't function as a chronological marker in any way like we observe at the beginning of verse 9 where it says, after these things. So you know one thing came first and another second. Uh, the, word, the word there, so, it doesn't indicate that verse 6 occurred next after verse 5. That's what I'm saying. Rather, verse 5, as I alluded to last week, served as part of Luke's, his abridged summary of his opening, in his opening prologue. That prologue that we see in verses 1 through 5, that offers an outline or an overview of what occurred during 40 days, the first 40 days that Jesus appeared. But verse 6 actually supplies the opening of Luke's story narrative. This is where the story begins. And at the beginning of verse 6, therefore, I prefer the language closer to the King James tradition, uh, which begins, quote, when therefore they had come together, or when they therefore had come together. So, so verse 6 marks the beginning of the story. When therefore they had come together. And verse 6 then describes, in my estimation, what first occurred when the entire group of disciples had first gathered with Jesus after his resurrection. Therefore, verse 6 occurs at or near the beginning of the 40 days. You follow me? And from what I've researched, uh, that is faithful to the original Greek construction. Uh, it will support that uh, analysis. So, verse 6, if that is accurate, would contain the first or one of the first questions that the disciples asked Jesus once they had gathered together. What I'm suggesting is that I don't think they asked this dumb of a question at the end of 40 days worth of Jesus' instruction. Follow me? I think it was at the beginning of the 40 days when they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That phrase being plural, they were asking him. It implies this question which was a shared and repeated concern of the entire group. Lord, you're alive. We're back in business here. Uh, oh boy, that, that pouring out of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's coming soon. Oh, man, this is great. This is great. Is this then the time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Well, not much with the disciples had changed yet at this point. So then, verses 7 and 8 would supply a concise summary of Jesus' reaction to their question and his response as he began to teach them the things concerning the kingdom of God over those 40 days. I just truly do not buy the idea that Jesus taught them 
over a period of 40 days. Uh, and at the end of it all, they still remain so completely oblivious as to ask the question posed in verse 6. Over 40 days, Jesus taught them, this is the time to think bigger. God's kingdom is far beyond what those apostles had originally thought. It isn't going to arrive in an instant at the snap of a finger. Rather, like a mustard seed, the kingdom is going to grow over a prolonged period of time. And it's going to span great distances. They hoped Christ's kingdom would be established quickly, with much ease, uh, which pretty much completely dismisses everything that Jesus had told them over three years. For three years, Jesus taught that if you are my disciple, you are going to have to pick up your own cross and follow me. That's Luke 14, 27. And that you will be hated by all because of my name. Matthew 10, verse 22. And they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Matthew 24 and verse 9. And how about one more? Jesus taught them in Mark chapter 13 and verse 12, brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Sound like anything's going to happen at the snap of a finger or the drop of a hat? When they arrive asking, Lord, you know, is this the time? Is it at this time? But it's almost as if they had forgotten everything that Jesus had taught them in their adult Bible class. For these reasons, we don't need to go too soft here on Jesus' disciples, especially now after the resurrection that they see he is raised. Um, they surely know the enormous cost that he had to pay for the sake of his kingdom. They saw it just days ago, but now he is raised. Yet although because, even though they were instructed clearly beforehand, um, they don't want to follow Jesus' example of the cross. They don't want to suffer for the cause of the kingdom. They just want the kingdom. John Calvin offers a tremendous insight to the carnal mindset of the disciples at this point. Again, this is probably immediately after the resurrection or very close to it. Calvin writes, quote, Jesus showeth that the apostles were gathered together when as this question was posed, that we may know that it came not of the foolishness of one or two that it was moved, 
but it was moved by the common consent of them all. But marvelous is their rudeness, writes Calvin, that when, as they had been diligently instructed by the space of three whole years, they display no less ignorance than if they had heard never a word. Calvin continues, There are as many errors in this question as words. They ask Jesus as concerning a kingdom, but they dream of an earthly kingdom, which will which should flow with riches, with dainties, with external peace, and with such good things. And while they assign, uh, assign the present time to the restoring of the same, they desire to triumph before the battle. For be, before such time as they even begin to work, they want to receive their wages. End quote. Boy, is that rich? Well said. The disciples want to inherit a kingdom for which they have not labored and rule without first having conquered with Jesus. They want to be Christians who never have to overcome. They feign commitment, but a commitment that endures no cost. And they want a kingdom where they can reign without first experiencing any pain. Have you ever seen what happens to the heirs of an estate who, who never themselves had to work for any of it? You know, you know the kids, they, they want all of daddy and mommy's money, but they never had to skin a knuckle in order to earn it. Yeah, it, it often destroys them because they comprehend not its enormous value, nor have they learned the, the godly restraint of delayed gratification after having worked for something. Uh, the only delay is waiting for mom and dad in some situations, a delay uh, for them to die, which for some of them is excruciating. It amazes me, uh, some of you know I watch some of the crime network and how some middle-aged people will have elderly parents and they just can't wait to, to inherit a modest estate and they'll step in and, and hasten the process. Shocking what people will do without working for it. You know, our sinful flesh... Our sinful flesh would like a reward without any labor. Christ is not going to allow that with the apostles nor with us to reward Christians with a kingdom for which they had not labored would be supremely unjust. God is not unjust, therefore it will not happen. Scripture says through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And in Acts 9.15, our Lord is going to say to a man in Damascus named Ananias, Go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine 
to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Do you think that suffering only applies to Saul? Whom Christ then made into the Apostle Paul? Sometimes we think, well, that's just payback for all the bad stuff Saul did. Is that what we experience? Just payback for all the bad stuff that we've done? You don't think the other apostles like Paul were also imprisoned and tortured and impoverished and martyred for the kingdom like Paul? How about Stephen and scores of other Christians who even today suffer and die for the kingdom? Folks, bearing your cross does not apply only to the apostles. Everyday Christians in the wealthy city of Corinth, you know, they thought they could slip into the kingdom easy without, without any sacrifice. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes to admonish them, his words initially just dripping with sarcasm. Paul says, you are already filled. You've already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, uh, because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak. Oh, but you are strong. You are distinguished, writes Paul, but we are without honor. To this present hour, the Apostle Paul continues saying of the Apostles, to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate, yet we have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, says Paul, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Christ set the pattern. The apostles replicated it. Paul says, you keep on enduring as well. This timeless principle of endurance and toil for the kingdom applied first in chronological order to the apostles, but not only to the apostles. Rather, to every Christian, you will not inherit God's kingdom until you have once first toiled for that kingdom. 
And Jesus assures that, that he or she who endures to the end will be saved. Boy, this is, this is, this is challenging, yet great stuff. Do you ever experience a temptation, a temptation of the flesh that, that just provokes you as it did these original disciples? You know, maybe I can just coast into the kingdom from here. Forget it. We, we don't coast into the kingdom. There is no retirement for Christians. We, we fall over dead into the kingdom. Now, now you may earn enough money uh, during your career that you might retire from your job. But there is no retiring from kingdom service. And there exists no road named Easy Street leading into the kingdom of Christ. Our work and our toil isn't complete until Christ himself returns. Jesus never once said, pick up your cross and follow me, but then, well, search for the first convenient place to set it down and rest. Instead, Jesus assured that just like me, you are going to carry your cross to your death all the way into the kingdom. For in Luke 14, verse 27, he says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Do you know what Jesus says next immediately after that? Get this. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Boom. Boy, I needed this passage this week. I'm going to keep preaching till I'm 90. <laughs> A few years saying, please don't. I don't even know the difference between Isaiah and Acts. Maybe someday I'll spend my time on a mower. Perhaps I'll stay healthy enough and my eyes will continue to be sharp, healthy enough to paint. Maybe I'll drink coffee at the cafe in the, each morning and I'll hand out gospel tracts afterward to people I see. You know, Tim Gunner has the right idea. There ain't nothing that stops him. It's like the Energizer Bunny. Just keeps going and going. Or, or Jerry Robertson was another good role model to me. He used his retirement to, to be a servant and an encourager to many all the way up until that last Christmas. He went out with his boots on. I'll tell you one thing for sure I ain't quitting. 
until there is no kingdom work left to do, we cannot quit. It's not going to come easy. I don't know when Christ is coming back. I don't need to know. <laughs> Scripture is clear. Nobody knows. Uh, so we have no basis on making a prediction. Trying to read current events and signs uh, to set dates, uh, that's a pastime of fools. Boy, throughout history it has made a mockery out of a bunch who've tried. God controls the seasons. He's set a date for Christ's return, says that it's fixed by His own authority. A term fixed means it is set conclusively in place. There is a day and there is an hour that nobody knows, not even the Son. So unless you're smarter than Jesus, just stop making predictions. Oh, not only that, ignore everybody who does. The apostles were not to become distracted with predictions. They had one responsibility. It's a responsibility that's been inherited by us. They had one responsibility, and that is to be Christ's witnesses. Jesus said in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. They were also told that they are going to be empowered to be His witnesses. To receive power implies that the power doesn't originate from within you. You need to receive it. It means it's, it's not a latent power that's within you that you need to look inside yourself and find. It's a power granted by, by God the Spirit. This therefore indicates it's a divine power, but what is the purpose? The purpose is for witnessing. And the context of witnessing assures that this divine power relates to, to speaking out with boldness. You shall be my witnesses. And of course we know this will surely be the focus when they speak in tongues, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We're going to leave that topic of tongues for chapter 2. But visiting Jerusalem, there were foreigners there, Jews from other countries, uh, who heard the apostles speaking in their own native languages. They heard them speaking, we are told, the mighty deeds of God. We know what that's about. That's the gospel. That's Jesus. So speaking the gospel with boldness is the divine power we see displayed beginning at Jerusalem at Pentecost. What makes Jerusalem so important? For number one, the Old Testament projected that the gospel of the new covenant must be declared to the Jew first. And then sometime after that, there will also be the Greek. We are going to see that a lot of the Old Testament prophetic fulfillment uh, will be announced at Pentecost. Jerusalem being the center of Old Covenant temple worship, prophetically, 
had to serve as ground zero for the gospel to go forth. Secondly, Jerusalem's nearby. The gospel is obviously going to follow a, a geographical progression over time. It'll go out into Judea, uh, into Samaria, even to the ends of the inhabited earth. That's why this passage is, is so often employed by pastors to, to motivate their churches to, to go to countries beyond their borders. That's just fine. The geographical expanse in Jesus' words suggests already this command will extend beyond the life of the apostles. That means it's delegated to us to keep spreading to the ends of the inhabited earth. So this command is to us as well. What else is significant about Jerusalem? Ready for this one? Well, you know, it's kind of become the disciples, kind of their adopted hometown, right? It's, it's their stomping grounds and their, their home turf, and there are friends there that they know. It's kind of comfortable. Uh, it's probably going to be the easiest place for the disciples to start. So, so the lesson here is to begin witnessing in a familiar place, which is really easy, and, and then just progressively work outwards as things where things will be a little more difficult. No. No. Jerusalem is the hardest place for them at this time. They are going to face the same opposition as did Jesus, whom was recently crucified. This is why Jesus told them, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me first. And he assured in John 15, verse 24, they hated me without a cause. So the disciples are going to witness first in the flaming forge of hatred for Jesus and to the same crowds who cried out, crucify him, and to the same religious leaders who commanded it. Boy, throughout my Christian life, I've heard Christians make excuses to not evangelize in whatever place they currently live. I've heard it. I'm sure you have as well. You know, this is just such a spiritually hard area. It's so dead. It's especially cold to the gospel around us. You know... Port St. Lucie, it's really tough to witness here. Yeah, there's so much influx by those liberals who are fleeing the policies of the Northeast. Yeah. Hard people. Hard people. And since Port St. Lucie is so hard and dead, this passage serves as especially good news to us. Spiritual hardness and resistance to Christ means this is exactly where we start. We don't need to move anywhere to begin. Peter will be the first to preach in Jerusalem 
at Pentecost, and we will see the hatred will intensify until Stephen becomes the first to die for the gospel. But at the same time, a small number, about 3,000, small percentage of Jerusalem, a small number will also be saved at Pentecost, and the kingdom will grow. Does this suggest to us in any way that, you know, local, uh, witnessing locally, does this suggest it's, it's going to be easy? Folks, it's never easy. It's never easy to open your mouth and speak. The, the kingdom requires you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's not easy. But can you do it by the divine power which God gives you? And the greater the resistance, we'll see the greater the, the, greater the power that God gives. In fact, our relentless attempts to devise evangelistic methods that will make our sharing easy Maybe it's one of the greatest detriments to our kingdom work. Why are we expecting we should always find ways to do it easy? What in Scripture implies that witnessing to people about Christ is easy? But the disciples need not fear. They can witness even in their own backyard, and the gospel is going to radiate out unto the nations. That progression of the gospel in verse 8, it serves as a good outline for all of Acts. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to begin at Pentecost. It's going to permeate Judea and Samaria. And by Acts chapter 28, the gospel is going to be permeating even remote places of the earth. Because of God's power and the power that He gives us to speak. Boy, did I say I needed this passage today? And verse 7 assures that Jesus will come when God is good and ready. And until that day, we never get to stop.